0: Corlew and with me as always is my friend and co-host Bob Sakora. We're here. We're here and uh, this week similar to what we did uh, the last two weeks we're gonna do part one of a two-parter where we kind of look at a whole uh, collection of poems. That book is Lead Belly by Tayemba Jess and in part one like similar like we like what we did with um Roske's Beholding the last two weeks Uh, we're going to do kind of trade-off episodes Uh, so this episode uh, bob's going to take the intro and i'll be asking him questions about poets poems he selected and then next week we'll do the reverse so uh, bob take it away man
1: i'm already going to uh, pull the the rug out from underneath you um, and and mess with literally what we agreed upon just five seconds ago (laughs) i meant to put this in the notes is what i'm saying but I, was cu- I know for a fact that I recommended this book to you. You at did. At some point. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember when and why. It totally makes sense that I would recommend this book. But I'm trying to I'm curious of your recollection.
0: It was Kevin's Wedding, I think. Um, <laughs> no specificity. It was either Kevin's Wedding or Eddie's Wedding. And um, you were describing your manuscript, your utopia manuscript to me. Okay. And I was talking about how much I liked uh, poetry that woven... Uh, research. And I don't remember what book I brought up. I may have brought up uh, This Nest Swift Passerine by Dan Beachy Quick, which isn't a research book so much as it is like a uh, uh, he like samples a lot of lines from a lot of different places to write a long poem. And I was talking about wanting to read more work like that. And you recommended this book to me. I didn't write it down and then forgot. And then off and on for like two years would text you and be like, who was that? What was that book you were telling me about? You would text me. And then I just wouldn't buy it. And then one day, I, for Christmas this year, I finally was just like, you know what? I do. I want this book. And so I put it <laughs> on my Christmas list, and I got it for Christmas.
1: <laughs> there's a long history leading up to this. There's, a, there's
0: <laughs> like at least a five-year history leading up to this.
1: Well, I, and that was, that was where the question is. And you have seen kind of the notes that I, I, I prepped in, in thinking about how I wanted to talk about this. What motivates that question is is me trying to put myself back on the timeline of when I would have specifically recommended Lead Belly. Um, because, so I read this my very first semester of grad school in a workshop. So that was like fall 2014, I want to say. Um, and it wasn't like a new book at the time. It was because we were specifically reading and thinking about books that were Um, built on some research and like you're saying that historical bend but specifically um, using research to inform your poems and just a couple years later I want to say his second collection Oleo came out it went on we went on to win the Pulitzer it's a remarkable collection and just he, he visited the MFA program that year I got to do an interview with him you know it's like one of those things where just like it one it totally makes sense that I would be recommending Time Bajest to literally anyone who would listen. Right. Um but I w- I was just so deep into Oleo. did this predate that or not? Um it does make sense that I'd recommend this this book on a musician in the blues. So I guess we're going to talk about it. Yeah, let's, let's talk about it. it. Let's do it. Like I said, I was I was thinking about this and it's so funny to read a book that I probably haven't read in in 6 or 7 years. And it was just funny to me remembering how I read this in this first grad school workshop, a workshop that I think I was not prepared for. Um, You know, I I guess I would spin that a little bit into, you know, um, anyone who wants to apply for a creative writing MFA program. I mean, there's a lot of people to tell you to do so or not to do so. And I don't want to be one of those people. But I do just um, want to shake you and say, prepare yourself and make use of that time and be ready. Because um, it definitely took me a semester or two to to, um, I think, be focused in the way that was, made that time really valuable. Sure. Um, and I would redo my first semester again. <laughs> it's a long way of saying that I got back into this book and I was like, I don't remember a ton of this. Mm. Um, and I found it to be a kind of tough read. It's, it's dense work. Um, I think I was trying to think of how to describe what I mean by a tough read. Um, and I think kind of like what came to mind was how, you know, to bring back uh, a patron saying of this pod show podcast, uh, you know, a Franco Hara poem, there is this like lightness and just like read it, blah, and there's feeling. And these poems have they take a they take a level of attention from me as a reader. Yeah. Um, that I often enjoy. But not every poem does this. And I had that thought as I was uh, as I was looking at the book and picked it up and on the front. Um, so it won the National Poetry Series. It was selected by um, Bridget Prezine Kelly. Butchering her name there, I'm sorry.
0: It's a tough um, one to say out loud. I always trouble with her name. <laughs>
1: um, and we've talked about her on the, the show before. We read um, Song, That Incredible Poem. And, yeah. and people love her now, getting the rightful respect she deserves. Um, but for me, there was this like awesome click of... Of a, of a judge selecting a judge who I admire, selecting this book that I admire. Um, and there are two names that I would not have really put together on my own kind of map of how they work as poets. Um, but it started to make sense to me thinking them kind of as poets or poets who have a poetics of rigor. And I felt that way with Kelly's book where I enjoyed a lot of the poems, but I could only read one or two at a time yeah. before I had to put the book down. And I felt almost similar about this book. Again, I, I'm going to go back to thinking about Oleo, again, his second collection. And, and he, he he has talked about on a number of occasions of just like it did take him, you know, it was over a decade between the two books being published. Um, and it's certainly not because he didn't, uh, because Tayamba didn't like produce a bunch of work or that like there weren't publishers who wanted to publish his work. It's because it takes him that much time and that much research and that much crafting um to write one of his books um and I think you will you immediately see that. Yeah. Apparently not very much, right? Like a couple pages in and you get it.
0: Oh yeah, the, this feels like a really lived-in world. Your use of the word rigor to describe it. Yeah, it feels it feels like you've been transported back and it 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 um he seems like he feels duty-bound to cram as much as he can in there, which makes sense for a 111-page collection with endnotes. But, um, but mostly, yeah, it, it has this feeling of a sense of duty to the history, duty to the story, that you've got to get everything right and you've got to get every detail right. Um, that's right. what I feel like, that's what I'm projecting onto what he's feeling. Um, sure. And uh, it definitely comes across in the page because it's a real lived-in world.
1: I, I really like that way of putting it of lived in. And yeah, there is yeah, the sense of um being really dedicated to the subject and wanting to do right by the subject. yeah like it definitely comes across here. Again, before I get into the poems, and I'm monologuing way too much, but it just it just was very much on my mind as I was reading this. Um there is this cool sense of reading this book years later, after reading and being really into Oleo, and like I read the shit out of oleo because i was going to interview this man right right. (laughs) Um, and uh i I just i kind of noticed these two things that i think have changed i don't know if i necessarily want to say improved but it's just his approach to the book is i found lead belly his first collection to be a little bit harder to navigate in terms of just an overarching narrative like you can tell this is going through lead belly's life and parts of his life and these different people Um, But from page to page, I wasn't necessarily keeping track of everything. And the second collection, Oleo, has a bunch of different disparate characters. But I think he very intentionally broke it up into some more clear sections, had these more prose pieces that, like, felt like prose pieces. I, I was going to say, I was re-looking through this, and I was like, I forgot how many prose poems they are in here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the prose poems work just as poetically and, yeah, like, dense poetics as the lineated ones and the ones that follow traditional forms, which leads to the second thing, and again, probably what I'm going to over-talk about in this episode, because um, Bobby loves form,
0: um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> is is in oleo? he really... Um, both in the collection itself and the way he talked about it, he made a big point to say, I want you to look at the craft of these poems. Um, I'm going to talk later in the episode about contrapuntals because there's a great Ted talk and it's, it's similar lecture that I saw he gives where he, you know, shows you the projection of the poem and then walks you the many different ways you can read the poem. There is a section of that book where he asks you to tear out the page and make it into a cylinder because that's the way you're supposed to read the poem. yeah you know he's, he's very much directing you with that stuff um, and so long way around to say it was really interesting to see this book where he probably had less creative control over the actual publication, you know maybe didn't necessarily know how much um, of that guidance maybe a reader needs, sure or something like that Anywho
0: I will say that I spent a lot of time with my thumb on the back where there's a a timeline of Lead Belly's life. Similar to like, like I did when I read a hundred years of solitude, they have the family tree at the beginning of the book. And I just keep that, keep my thumb on that page. Right. Anytime I read that book, Um, I was, I was referencing back and forth just to keep track of who the people were because they have names and they have nicknames and, you know, stuff like that. And I know that, you know, the poem the poem on the page is king. The poem on the page is most important, but just wanting to have proper context for reading the poem, you know, Mm -hmm. because it it does seem like it proceeds mostly in a linear fashion. Right. But uh, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to make sure I, I was, was sort of grounded in what was being referenced. So, Um, but that might also Um, be my fiction brain too.
1: I I say, I mean, I, I I wish I had done that where I paid so much attention to um, the, uh, the timeline, like you're saying, um, I mean, I guess there's something about because I felt the same way. There's something about once you know that this is, you know, kind of biographical and there's a history and you sense that feeling of narrative, like you want to catch it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: You know, but I think that is a good segue. Um, you know, I did not know much about Lead Belly before reading this, you know, and I think that kind of impacts the way you read it. So I was curious about your background knowledge, your, your, you're a little bit more of a music historian than I am. For sure. Um, so what did you know going into it?
0: I didn't know much, to be honest. Um, I knew that he was a legendary bluesman. I knew that he was sort of a pioneer of the genre and that a lot of my favorite groups favorite groups, were influenced by him kind of thing. I knew he wrote Where Did You Sleep Last Night, which Nirvana covered as the closer for their Unplugged album. Um, and I have a fun aside about that song. Uh, my kid has a toy guitar with preset chord buttons. Like it's not strings. It's just the shape of a guitar with buttons, but right. all of the buttons only play major chords. So he'll ask me to play songs for him on there. And there's just not a lot you can play, but that song uses all major chords. So I've been playing. Where did you sleep last night for my son since he was six months old.
1: Um, Amazing.
0: Um, Cause I can get all the chords on that guitar. Right. Um, <laughs> But um, but yeah, I didn't know much about him, except that he was a, a bluesman who lived a life where it made sense that he felt the blues, um, you know, and yeah. I knew there was some sort of, it would make sense that Cobain would cover this guy. I was not prepared for all the crazy stuff this book throws so at us. Was... <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. I think that's such a, a good way of putting it. I did not yeah, know no. he
0: killed a person and assaulted multiple people so bad he went to jail for it Um.
1: Uh, yeah there's a lot here in this book let's get into the first poem that i chose to talk about i and honestly i think part of the reason i chose this one was just that it was a series towards the beginning where i had dog-eared three or four pages Mm -hmm. like years ago so that's obviously where i went like immediately when i reopened the book um yeah and i read this poem and i was like god Golly, you know, like, oof. Um, So here we go. This is Fannin Street Signifies. I shake the dust off farm boy's heels, pound their pulse with dice and delirium, suckle them to swagger with alley-hard nipples spouting a hundred-proof rumors of gap-thighed awe. I give them what they want till their swollen-chested dreams snap, spill crimson at the seams. This one rushes at me like a blade out of darkness, seeking glory's keloid rise across my gutter-ripe skin. Fine. I cut a hole in his heart, nail in a dozen metronomes, each time to the rhythm of a newfound sinner's sigh. I line his throat, with a church load of moonlight. Smear blues afterbirth, of Bible and ball across his skull. I stuff his ears with a thousand bales of barrel house folklore. Plant his tongue in the cunt of song.
0: So much going on there. So I did look up Fannin Street, and mm-hmm. it does seem to be kind of like a... Uh... Shreveport red light district type place.
1: Okay. Um, okay.
0: And he has a song about Fannin Street that I listened to this afternoon. I don't have the lyrics pulled up, but it, it does seem to be talking about a, um, a, a a place for sex work. Um, right. Which I'm, I'm getting that that's what the narrator of this poem is talking about.
1: That makes me feel good because, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at as well in my reading of it, but that was going to be one of the first things I say is like, this is a poem where I finish it and I love it and I'm like, I can't tell you, you know, yeah. I cannot give you a clear, this is what it's about. Right. Um,
0: there's there's such a mix of like violence and sex and like mm-hmm. tenderness and more violence that I, I, it's it's hard for me to process, um, but this is in reference to at least a real place that, as far as I can tell, in like the most minimal amount of research, was kind of like a uh, a rough and tumble area of town. Uh, right. So, um, so yeah, um, we can you know get more into that with the questions. Why did you pick this poem?
1: So as I said, it was dog-eared and still is to this day, um, and I think it kind of just excited me to get back into it as a poem that embodies the, the force of his language and word choice. Sure. Yeah. Um, You know, that a classic poem where I go like, man, every word, every line counts and it hits. Um, And, you know, both the word, I think the words I use like count and force, probably like really kind of double work here because it is this poem of violence. And, a speaker with an anger, but also a swagger. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. A, uh, a sense of taking ownership of this moment and what they're talking about. And yeah, this is someone who's tough and who you're not going to mess with. And the language just like enacts that so wonderfully. Right.
0: If this is a sex worker, like we think it, we, like we think it is, is a very empowered sex worker. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the, the density there are just so many. What's that Ann Carson line about? Like, nouns are the world, verbs are the actions of the world, adjectives name the world, or something like that. you heard that's in like the preface to autobiography of Red, I think.
1: I'm gonna say you got it right.
0: I'm not sure though. Okay, um, <laughs> but there's so many adjectives are doing a lot of work here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, alley hard nipples spouting hundred proof rumors. That that immediately signals to me tough sex worker vibes right the uh the metaphors that i cut a hole in his heart nail in a dozen metronomes each time to the rhythm of a newfound sinner's sigh is just what a way to describe a sexual encounter right. um, <laughs> um and then the the barrel house folklore that is naming like a you know that to me signifies like you know, barroom talk, things like that. Like mm-hmm. this is clearly like a real rough and tumble part of town and like in a time when being alive wasn't the easiest thing to be doing. Right. <sighs> <You know>. Right. <sighs> um,
1: I mean I think kinda like you're pointing to as well, like every opportunity for the language to um to be rich and loaded and maybe have multiple meetings or have like just an extra forceful meaning, you know, you pointed to great line break, suckle the suckle them to swagger with alley lat line break, hard nipples spouting a hundred proof line break rumors. That hundred proof rumors to me is particularly great. Yeah. Um, Gap fide awe. Um, I, you know, I, I couldn't in a hundred years think to, Have those words in that exact order. No. And similarly, I line his throat with a church load of moonlight. Church load of moonlight. Yeah.
0: Like. There's so much there. And I'm I don't think I could ever in a million years really get what it's getting at. But there's (laughs) there's a lot. There's a lot implied.
1: Yeah, yeah. Maybe that is part of why this is such an exciting poem, is that 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 sense of the language, just having this heft and weight of of what is on the page, of what it sounds like out loud. Yeah. Part of why I love Taeyeon Bajessa's work so much is, you know, the 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 language out loud is just so good. The musicality, the rhythm. You know, it, these are these are poems that I really enjoy reading out loud and hearing out loud. Yeah, for sure. But then also, like you're saying, of, of yeah, of these just evocative language that makes me go places. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, we've talked many a time on how you can't bring religion into a poem without either of us, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> having some feelings. Yeah, and, and church load of moonlight is such a good, just like small little thing.
0: Yeah, I actually want to uh, call attention to both a religion and a sound thing. Okay. So in that stanza we're talking about, and I... I'm, I'm extremely sorry but you mispronounced a word there uh, when you oh, read damn
1: it. It. you read a
0: uh, uh, baal as ball and that's right baal is a um, uh, one of Yahweh's chief adversaries in the Old Testament uh, mm-hmm. the Israelites mm-hmm. are always um, uh, getting tempted by Baal because his uh his uh, rituals involve like animal sacrifice and sex rituals and that's like way cooler than what <laughs> Yahweh wants his people to do <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, smear blue's afterbirth of Bible and bale across his skull. I stuff his ears with a thousand bales of barrel house folklore. That to me, like, and the uh, cutting back a little bit to um, the church load of moonlight, which right. immediately precedes the part I just read. It feels a little bit like, you know, the old adage of like, commit all your sins on Saturday night and ask for forgiveness on Sunday morning kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. It feels yeah. a little bit like that in that stanza. And then the, the contradiction of the pouring both uh, Bible and Baal into a skull. Um, there's something there. I, and I don't, I don't have a landing spot, but there's, there's something, there's something interesting with the contradictions going on there.
1: Absolutely. Especially
0: yeah. given the setting our presumed setting. I feel like I have to say this is what we're reading. It as not before everything.
1: Right. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we're not too far off, but yeah. yeah. Um, we're yeah, not we're that definite. stupid,
0: but you know, just, just in case
1: <laughs> I assume we're at least a little bit stupid. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so mad. I looked that up, but I didn't even think about how to pronounce it. uh
0: it's in here. You pulled a real Chris Corlewell on that one.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> I missed the double sound of bail and bales. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Uh, so let's go to uh, what's the move uh, we're we're dancing around it uh, you've highlighted a few lines in your notes but what's the move say, for you
1: most of you know what I wanted to talk about in this poem was just like there's so many moves but I think if I did have to hone in a little bit um, you you briefly touched on the stanza um, you know maybe actually it is right above that the stanza that I was going to talk about um, is the third to last I cut a hole in his heart Nail in a dozen metronomes each time to the rhythm of a newfound sinner's sigh, and and, and that's just a moment um, that I love. Of if a poet's gonna bring up rhythm yeah. in the words, you know they're thinking about the rhythm in that in that stanza. You know yeah. that, that's it is. It's just like a beautiful sounding um, moment in the poem. Absolutely, but perhaps even more the move in this poem is again, we have this density of language and then right above that stanza, right at the halfway point, we have fine.
0: Yeah. That is you know, um,
1: sharp silence.
0: Fine. You can hear that fine too. You can, exactly. you can hear the exact tone of it. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of uh, both fire and resignation in that fine. I feel like
1: <laughs> right, um, mostly too, as you say, yeah, it, It speaks a lot. Yeah. And one of the things that it speaks is how I would love to hear someone not me read this poem. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Because I think you could do a lot with with this voice. Um, Yeah. Yeah, just like what a strong and vicious um, and, and... self-assured and just not taking shit. Yeah. Um, I, you know.
0: Yeah. All of those adjectives um, and the self-assuredness on the writer's part to just put fine there. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, all of those adjectives for the speaker, for sure. I love it. Yeah. It's a great poem, man.
1: And I think again, I guess just talking about some of, or thinking of part of what this embodies about what Taymba does so well, I, 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 Kind of even forgot about to mention a just of a lot of these are persona, po- almost all of them are persona poems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he can take on so many voices yeah um, in, in really exciting, really exciting ways.
0: Yeah. Not an easy feat as I'm finding out with my novel right now. <laughs> <laughs> I've only got five narrators and it's like, this is too many.
1: Oh, only five. <laughs>
0: only five. <laughs> uh, well, mm-hmm. Shall we get to the uh, second one?
1: Yeah, let's talk I, about the. Subject. I want to. I,
0: I do want to uh, talk about form, like you did, because I'm. I'm. I'm really interested in what you want to. What you have to say. So I feel like we're going to go long on this one.
1: All <laughs> right. Um, so I. I just. I knew I didn't want to talk about this book with talk. Talking about um, the contrapuntal form, which I feel like I'm saying wrong, even though I have used this word many a times. I'm looking up how to spell it contrapuntal. There we go. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, yeah. And again, I, this also was kind of one of those things that came to me as this cool, this cool tracking of his work between this book and *Oleo*, where um, he uses a lot more of this form in that second book. And this one, it's it's it, there's about five or six of them towards the end of the book. And in part, he uses this form, I think, because for each time it's someone and Lead Belly as the name of the poem. Um, and and part of what works about the form in that situation is that you have these two different voices mm-hmm. within the poem, yeah. someone else and Belly. But I also read that of them showing up towards the end of the book. And it, this is all me putting it on there, but just like, oh, maybe as he was writing, he figured out how much he likes this form <laughs> and how much he wants to play with it and keep practicing it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so let me read it, um, and then I can kind of talk about the form. We can talk about it. Um, and I, I did honestly choose one of the, the shorter and probably easier of these, um, but that's because I think I know it's it's kind of hard to talk about. Yeah. Um, so Brownie and Lead Belly. Stipulations and Apprenticeship. There were certain stipulations, some rules I would endure. Lead wanted bluesmen dress proper, and I didn't like wearing suits that want to be high class to live up to them old traditions. Your necktie on Nails all buffed, your shoes shined, clean as church. You didn't carry your guitar on your back. Can't tote your Stella like a hobo sack. You carried it in a case. Cradle her in lush velvet. You don't take your coat off on stage. Bear a suit stern as a preacher's collar. But lead was always beautiful. Neat as a pin and clean as a brand new bottle. There were certain stipulations lead wanted, and I didn't want to live up to them. Your necktie on, your shoes shined. You didn't carry your guitar on your back. You carried it in a case. You don't take your coat off on stage. Lead was beautiful, neat as a pin, and clean as a brand new bottle. Some rules I would endure. Bluesmen dress proper, like wearing suits that be high class to live old traditions. Nails all buffed, clean as church. Can't tote your Stella like a hobo sack. Cradle her in lush velvet. Bear a suit stern as a preacher's collar. But lead was always beautiful. Neat as a pin. And clean as a brand new bottle.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you read it both ways. Um, so, so when he, yeah, you uh, when he came
1: to to do his reading, he made it very clear of like, oh no, when you read this, <laughs> I want you to read it the one way, then I want you to read it the other way, <laughs> um, and and it doesn't necessarily work for these, but he does have other ones where he's like, oh, there are more ways to read it. Trust me.
0: Sure, sure. There's <laughs> yeah, one like in the book has- I was trying to find. I, did, I should have written it down and I didn't, but there was one earlier. Where I think it's one where it's Libellian Lomex, um, mm-hmm. where their lines intersect. And the issue I've always had with contrapuntal poems is that, um, when they don't sync up perfectly like that, it feels like a gimmick that just is making me read the poem twice, you know? <laughs> but the way he does them in this book kind of made me come around on the form. Uh, okay. I, yeah. I, I like the way, he, um, uh i like the way tiember's doing it um it's way way more interesting and way more you know multiple meaning making and and uh uh way more my speed than other examples i feel like i've encountered and i can't even name ones that off the top of my head but uh i,
1: I, I was going to say i you know my first thought when i was trying to write some notes about this um was that I was like i know he's not the person who invented this and then my five-minute research did not reveal anything close to who invented this form. (laughs) Um, I do think that, like, the one thing that came out of that research, kind of just confirming what my hunch was, is that, like, people have tried to do stuff like this for a very long time. Yeah. You know, different cultures, not even in English. Um, You know, there have been lots of toying with this idea of you can read the poem in different ways.
0: Right. And I know some has been written where, it is meant to be performed and it's meant to have like two performers talking over each other, Right. Um, which right. is a whole other thing entirely. But um, for sure. Yeah. I guess just the few examples I've come across and I wish again, I, I can't remember, think of anything specific and I don't even know if I'd want to <laughs> name someone and be like, I hated this poem. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. but, um, but yeah, I've never had the form work for me until reading this book. And then right. it, it really worked for me in this book.
1: And I think, you know that kind of just gets to again this this level of craft that i admire so so much um i think like you said when you bend it a little bit it 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 hurts the form you know when you can tell they're forcing something um or just like the the path of the sentence is is too clearly broken um i guess for listeners out there who don't have this poem in front of you um there's there's a there's a line of white space essentially it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that between the sections of the poem and you can read the poem straight across so you go through the line and the line reads correctly or entirely correctly Where <laughs> or you could read just down the left side or just down the right side tayamba plays with to me, feels like in addition to the form, again, probably something he owes to other poets um, or has built on other poets, but where there's words in the middle um, that are supposed to be read by either side, he makes it very clear that these are two different voices. So you have one side in italics, one side just in the regular text. And I just, having tried to write one of these ever... Oh,
0: boy, yeah.
1: (laughs) uh, I can tell you that it is... So difficult,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: um, you know,
0: and to get them because... to intersect and line up like he does,
1: like I was to say that's that's really it is to write regular old sentences,, right. <laughs> you know, and have this gap, and oh, it makes sense when you read it across and when you read it down is very difficult, yeah, but to make it a poem and to make the language worth reading, the language exciting and and to you know, to sound good, to have you know, kind of poetic traits, and and to use everything in your po- poem toolbox. On top of that, then also to have these two distinct voices. Right. I know I could hear it myself when I was reading it. How different the voices
0: were. Oh, absolutely. Uh, mostly because there's a clear conflict set up between two characters, right? Um, where it really is just like a um, a difference in philosophy. I tried to look up who uh, uh, Brownie might be. And I found this guy, Brownie McGee, but I couldn't find any connection between the two, although they were both blues players around similar times. Right, uh, He was okay. born, I think, uh, I guess like almost 25, 30 years after Lead Belly.
1: I mean, that fits into the narrative, right?
0: It fits the you know, narrative. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't know if that's who specifically is being addressed here, but it, it fits the narrative and it would fit the, the conflict between the two characters. Right. And when you have even that little bit of maybe context, yeah, you can definitely hear the two voices um, right? Um, as a younger man and an older man. But yeah,
1: And I love, you know, I just, that sense of conflict I think is important to the poem, especially in regards again to the, like the longer narrative. I, I, you know, you put it really well early on here talking about a blues man who's, who's, you know, life is filled with that, um, <laughs> Uh, quality that he <laughs> right. meant the blues were gonna be the the song the music that he makes, but uh, yeah, you have this sense of kind of conflict hanging over it. His character coming out in terms of you know this insistence of this is how it's got to be, um, but also just that like clean is a brand new bottle as the end line. Yeah. Oh, so good.
0: And twist so much of that. Um... Uh, respectability imagery from the second voice presumably lead Belly's voice twisted totally on its head
1: yes uh, exactly you know he did
0: have trouble with drinking and stuff like that and the clean as a brand new bottle is you know it's like this look this buttoned up guitar in your case look is your aspirational look but the inline your aspiration is another brand new bottle kind of thing right uh, yeah yeah oh it's sick yeah. it's very good
1: I love it. Every time I read one of these, I think about trying to write one again.
0: Oh boy. And, <laughs> uh
1: you know, uh I, I think we've said before, you know, one of probably some of the highest praise that I can give to a poem is when it makes me want to write.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um
1: and this, this hits a particularly different level where it makes me want to write and also wants to make me give up at the same
0: time. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> Um, it, uh, it makes me want to go work on my novel. It does not make me want to, uh, take the pressure of writing a poem like this up. Um, Um, but yeah, that, I mean, you know, that's, I mean, that's a good thing that it awakens that in you though. For sure. Even if it Um, is so, so daunting seeming.
1: (laughs) Um, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to look at it and think about it um, in terms of, I don't know, I guess something really left a mark on me when I heard him talking about, you know, the time between his two books and, you know, how much work went into it. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah. Looking at a poem like this, man, it really makes me think about like, what is that work?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: And also I guess a little bit does make me want to like slow down and say hey the book will the book will come.
0: Right. You know, like, right.
1: Like it might just take you 10 years to write it.
0: Yeah, there's that. Yeah, it's a tough balancing act cuz I've been working on a lot of projects for about 10 years and some days it's like what am I even doing with this project? I I mm-hmm. I'm curious what his day-to-day is, you know. Right. Um I presume he has like a you know, a, a university job or something like that. Where
1: I believe he teaches, yeah. Yeah,
0: so, yeah. I mean, that that helps a little bit, but uh, as opposed to, you know, just working like a regular day job or whatever. But yeah, what is that day-to-day like?
1: <laughs> I was just going to say, I think what, that kind of does, <laughs> we've trampled all over the question of uh, the move is <laughs> is the form. The form right. is the move. Um, and just what a move it is.
0: Right, and what, what a move it is. Yeah, it's... It's really genius the way he pulls it off in, in here, and like I said before, it's the first one of these that's ever worked for me. The way they overlap is is really doing a lot of heavy lifting for me, and I wish I could maybe I can find the one real quick. Oh, it's Lomax versus Lead on the yep, road, nineteen thirty-five, page ninety. Page yep. Yeah, that one does a lot of the same stuff, where you can read it horizontally or you can read it vertically. Same two voices well not the same two voices different character but the same two voice setup Um, right yeah this one is eight pages before the one we're talking about and yeah just it just really lines up and what a great what a great poetic way to write characters too you know yes um because that can sometimes i love multimodal multimodal stuff i love um genre bending stuff but you know if you're not careful it can feel a little contrived or like a little bit of Half in, half out of poetry and fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I can't think of any specific specific examples, and I wouldn't call them out if I even if I could. But I just know, like even like stuff where where I've been trying to do things like that. It's like ah, this feels a little gimmicky right now at mm-hmm. this point. And mm-hmm. part of the you know part of writing a first draft is getting all the gimmicky stuff out and then
1: chiseling sure. around
0: it. But um, uh, I'm sure neither of these poems were <laughs> born fully formed on the page. But um, right but man the the amount of craft, craftsmanship in in, in these counterpunctuals is a uh,
1: yeah, I think <laughs> I think part of it I'm thinking about that that voice that you're talking about um of or maybe I'm just thinking of for myself that voice that second guesses myself as you know is something gimmicky because I've definitely written things and and feel that, yeah, um, and I think part of what is so admirable about his work. And again, I, I think so much too of, of as a personality. You know, he's he's so into his work and confident about his work, sure. um, and excited to, to show you all the crap that he has done. Um, but that's part of uh, yeah, just what I admire so much about this book is he is going all the way in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, he is going so far into. I mean, like you said earlier, into this world, into this universe. Um, into the historical research um, into finding some way to bring these voices to life, you know? And so, you know, maybe, you know, who knows how he first decided he wanted to like take on that form. Um, But, you know, talk about it really just is like the absolute right way to have these characters talking to each other um, and making another facet um, of lead belly more vivid and clear and uh, just an absolutely unique way to experience it. Yeah.
0: One hundred percent. Yeah. Shouts out. Shouts out. <laughs> Can't wait for part two.
1: Part two. I'm excited because I think you, I anticipate, maybe I shouldn't put you on the spot like this. No, I, I anticipate that your, your history here, um is going to point me to some things that I probably didn't even notice. I have some,
0: uh, I, I have some, I have some thoughts percolating around. I haven't written the intro yet, but I have, I have some, I have some ske- sketches and notes that hopefully right. will lead somewhere nice. I guess we'll find out next week
1: and <laughs> we'll see what happens. Stay tuned. All
0: right. So for the NBA question, um, Leadbelly, you know, as we talked about, was a uh, bluesman in the early days of recorded music. Um, his influence led to basically all the music we know today. Um, and personally, I dig his stuff, but there is a sense listening to it, that a hard edge has been somewhat sanded off by time. And it's not, it's nothing to do with the content of his music, more just like how the way music sounds has evolved. You know, mentioned that Nirvana covered him. Cobain and Lead Belly, two singers who lived similarly hard lives. Cobain's music hits a little harder for me. I feel the pain a little bit more because I grew up listening to it, you know, like as, I mean, I would have been listening to it like right after he died. So I'm a couple steps removed from the grunge generation and, you know, a couple generations removed from the Lead Belly generation. (laughs) Um, So the question is, which NBA player, basketball player, pioneered an aspect of the game that you wish you could have seen as they were first doing it? Someone who did stuff no one had seen before, but players of later generations have gone on to perfect or evolve. Ooh, I love it. So, okay. So for me, I was going to... My first thought was Dr. J, but we just talked about him a week or two ago.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the question maybe made me a little bit think of Dr. J as well. <laughs> um,
0: so I decided to go with uh, Pete Maravich. I think uh, I grew up hearing Pistol Pete talked about in reverential tones. And you look at highlights, he's awesome. He's an incredible player. But his handling, his passing, his fancy passing, his long-distance shooting has all been evolved and done better by right. a slew of other players. Like the distance shooting that he was doing, he played without three-point line, but, I mean, you know, it it's roughly the three-point line, maybe a little bit yeah. farther back. Has nothing on Steph or Dame, you know? Uh, sure. The dribbling and passing has nothing on White Chocolate Williams or the entirety of the N1 mixtape tour and stuff like that. Still love watching Pistol Pete highlights. He's a great highlight reel, but... Right. It would have been a lot cooler if I was seeing it for the first time in, like, 1971 or whatever.
1: I mean, he would have just been so far ahead of everyone else.
0: So far ahead of everyone else, yeah. Yeah. So I just think it would have been cool to experience that as the rest of the world was seeing it for the first time.
1: I wonder how, you know, a 12-year-old getting into basketball right now thinks of Pistol Pete. Um, Because, like you said, when I was growing up, there was still this, like reverence about the name and what he contributed um you know but he's very much you know the the basketball reference page will not blow your mind no no um, with what he he did in his career or anything like that um and and so i'm i'm i wonder how much you know do those highlights live on as um you know giving that sort of importance to what he did um or you know yeah just what, what do the kids think?
0: Yeah, I don't
1: what know. Do you, what do you think?
0: <laughs> <laughs> what do the youth think?
1: Um, I immediately thought of this question. You 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 turned it on me a little bit when you mentioned that idea of of pioneering as um, pioneering something that people still do today or have built upon. So I don't know if my answer quite lives up to that, but I just when you were when you were first constructing the question, the immediate thing that came to my mind is. Um, his cream and his sky hook. Oh, sure. And how I've watched highlights of it. I've seen it. I understand it. I still wish I could have seen it in person in real time to fully get how unstoppable it was. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like I think just seeing like how often he would use it. Probably most of all, what I want to see is see it in person. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, But also, what what makes it so remarkable is that just like nobody has been able to duplicate it.
0: Nobody's been able to duplicate it. Um, I saw a YouTube video when uh, poor Sean Bradley got paralyzed a couple weeks ago. Did you hear about that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, This YouTube channel, Basketball Time Machine, did a was Sean Bradley really that bad? And I guess for his first, for his college years and his first like couple seasons in the NBA, he kind of had a reliable sky hook.
1: Okay, um, okay. But
0: then he had just like a bunch of knee injuries and got slowed down and right. uh, his offensive, offensive skills kind of stagnated and stuff like that. But yeah, he, he pulled like three or four clips of him like shooting a real skyhook. And I was <laughs> like, how much differently would we think of Sean Bradley if he'd been right. the only other player besides Kareem to perfect a skyhook? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, you're, uh, you're talking about seeing it in person because it was truly unstoppable. Everyone knew it was coming. Yeah. It's like I mean Cream had other moves but like that was the one. <laughs> I mean was it just cuz he was 73 or was it I mean is it I truly mean, undefendable? Exactly... <laughs> and I I watched the clips and I don't know. Yeah. You know?
1: I think that's exactly you're getting at it and and why that like you know maybe Sean, someone Sean Bradley size is the person to try it and see if they can master it cuz that does seem to be part of it is that if you are 7 foot or under you are not quite tall
0: enough. Right, it might, it's liable um, to get blocked. If you, right,
1: yeah. um, but also definitely part of it too is just, um, you know, I, I think we talk about how incredible it is that players now just can shoot the three and the deep three so reliable. Like, it's it's unbelievable yeah. the percentage they can shoot it at. Um, but I think that also was part of what made the Skyhook so incredible is that, you know, he could shoot it 10, 15 feet away At an incredible clip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs)
0: Um, It's not, because if you're just messing around your driveway and you practice it enough, you can start to figure out the angle. Uh, Mm -hmm. I've done it before. Never where to where I tried in a game or anything like that. It's like, oh, I can start to figure out the angle. I kind of have this reliably down if I ever have to do it in, like, a horse game or something like that. Right. But, um, But, yeah, he did it from all angles of the court, from, like, Like, an 18-foot range
1: sometimes. (laughs) As someone who has a proclivity to uh, try a little right hook, um, (laughs) there are some angles that you see him do it at where you're just like, that makes zero sense sense. to shoot it right now. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many better ways to be, like, looking at the basket for one (laughs) thing. Kareem, though, uh, open invite if you ever want to be on the show. Yeah,
0: yeah, another uh, renowned writer and uh, uh, passionate social justice activist. Would fit right in, Kareem. Uh, you're welcome anytime. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, this was a fun one. Um, I think next week will be fun as well. This is a great book if you uh, want to pick it up in the intervening weeks. And you're not going to get through it in a week, but, you know. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> you can recently read along with what we're talking about. Um, Yeah, that's been an episode. Our music is produced by Brendan Johnson and our artwork is done by AM Strickland and we'll talk to you guys next week.